is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Welcome to the program. The nation's farm lobby has taken a swipe at the federal government over changes to super laws. We will get their verdict on it shortly on the program. Even though this has been pitched as only affecting 0.5 of a percent, why does the NFF say it affects farmers? You'll find out soon. And who makes the most money in agriculture? Well, one way to look at it is to look at return on investment over the, and productivity over the last 30 years. That's what one farm analyst firm has done with, well, publicly available data. We'll go through those numbers. wonder if you can think who is in front. When we look at those numbers, you can give us your thoughts. Send us a text 0467 842 722 to send us a text on the program. You can call as well, 1300 Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Emma Field. Emma. G'day, Warwick. Making rural news today, farmers in the northern tablelands of New South Wales have been told that a chronic sheep condition is now considered endemic to the region. Ovine Yoni's disease, a bacterial infection which causes chronic condition loss in sheep and goats, is now considered endemic across the entire state of New South Wales following recent detections. New South Wales Government Local Land Services District Vet Meg Parsons says Ovine Yoni's is here to stay. Traditionally, we've always thought of Ovine Yoni's disease as a more southern New South Wales disease. Um, however, within the past sort of 12 months, we have diagnosed quite a number of infections across the Northern Tablelands region and it's going to be more widespread than we currently know because it has such a long incubation period. So it takes at least two to three years to show up in flocks. Um, So we know if we're getting infection showing up now, within the next two to three years, we're going to see a really big spike in it as that infection starts showing itself. It's a disease now that is going to be here all the time and it's something that um, we'll just have to sort of learn to live with. One of Australia's largest mango producers has imported three new avocado varieties to try and tempt Australian consumers. The avocado industry is dominated by the Hass and Shepherd varieties, but mango giant Mambulu has the right to a group of newcomers. Managing Director Marie Picconi says they'll now be tested in Australian conditions and presented to consumers. If you look at other industries like the potato industry, tomatoes, apples, uh, there's never been, even mangoes, there's not always a reliance on just one or two varieties, one major dominating variety. And we've identified that there is room for other varieties in the avocado industry. So rather than stick with um, planting even more Hass when there's some situations where you know there's just too many Hass around, um, we wanted to offer customers and consumers Um, a new experience. These varieties are very exciting because they're all the progeny of Sharwell. And Sharwell is a variety that was um, found and it was found in Australia in about the 60s or 70s. It's an absolutely amazing tasting variety, but it never, it never um, expanded hugely commercially. These varieties have got a beautiful nutty, buttery flavour. People don't always stick to exactly what they've always had. They look forward to something that's new. I mean, that's, that's a consumer trend. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries has extended its control order for prawn farmers around the Clarence River as it tries to get a grip on the current outbreak of white spot in the region. 
The highly contagious white spot disease was first detected in Australia in southeast Queensland in August 2016 and has affected many East Coast prawn farmers since. It's been a blow for the sector frustrated by the resulting control measures and the continuing failures to eradicate the disease. DPI's Chief Vet Sarah Britton says authorities are monitoring the current outbreak in Yamba on the New South Wales north coast where two new detections were discovered in the same area last month. We have had a control order that's restricted movement out of that region for the last two weeks and we are extending that control order through for another four weeks until the 29th of March. And the reason for that is, is to enable us to get this data and the surveillance and especially since we've got two properties that are impacted, it enables us to then work out what the connections, links, sources, surveillance that's required and the information to pull that all together to inform the long-term management. And let's take you back to the wet week in areas of Western Australia's top end. In the Kimberley region, the Lake Argyle Spillway is overflowing for the first time since 2017. And there are roads closed, but some pretty happy pastoralists with some well-fed cattle about. Billy Daykern looks after Carlton Hill Station near Kununurra, where about 160 millimetres has fallen over the past week, and the property has had about 700 millimetres this wet season. He says it's made for a ripper start to the year. Yeah, this year seems to be sitting right for the grass growing and everything. Eh? Yeah, it's a pretty good wet season. There's some good fat cows getting around, the yeah, sale cattle putting them weight. We'll pull off some good wieners this year, which will be good. And so what does that do for the, the outlook for 2023? How are you feeling about the, the season ahead? No, it should be good, eh? It should be good. And the last year was looking a bit sketchy there, whether or not we were going to have a decent bit of rain to have a good season. But, yeah, this year I reckon yeah, we should have a pretty good run with our weights, wiener weights and even our sour weights and everything. We should have a higher kg, which, yeah, which everyone aims for anyway. But, yeah, it'd be good to sort of pick it up a bit. And that's Rural News for this Thursday. That was good, eh? Thanks very much for that, Emma Field there. Wonderful to hear those stories of rain and how they affect different farming enterprises around the country, especially the Kimberley and the Pilbara, all those sorts of areas where those figures have been coming in from this year. You're listening to the Country Hour Work along with you back here in Victoria. Well, there haven't been huge figures of rain lately, if we're honest, but if you've got anything to report, you can always send us a text or you can give us your thoughts on this because the nation's top farm lobby is... Warning changes to superannuation laws could disadvantage farmers. The federal government has announced it plans to double the tax rates paid by Australians with superannuation account balances worth more than $3 million. The federal treasurer is calling it a national conversation on tax breaks paid to fewer than 0.5% of superannuation accounts. So what do farmers have to do with it? National Farmers Federation CEO Tony Maher says changes could stifle investment in agriculture. We're a little bit surprised and um, disappointed that the Treasurer hadn't uh, reached out to bodies like the National Farmers Federation and others to consult on this. This government has made a point of uh, saying that they're wanting to work with communities, work with business groups, work with consumers and, and the population on changes and we hadn't heard or been consulted on any of this and um, you know that's disappointing for um, for farmers in the agriculture sector because you know many farm businesses use self-managed superannuation funds to hold agricultural assets and you know that's especially important in things like succession planning which are incredibly difficult and take a long period of time so 
in worst case scenario, what the Treasurer's done is uh, is demonstrate perhaps a couple of things that he doesn't necessarily care about agriculture or he doesn't understand agriculture, and that's pretty disappointing if that's the case. So can you give us an example, Tony, of, of someone, you know, a, farming, a farmer, a farming family in this situation off the back of this announcement, what they might now be, be facing or, or having to look at? Sure. It's important to note, Christy, that, you know, probably every single farm business is just slightly different. But sure, of course. For, for example, um, you know, assets like uh, the property and, and other assets that the business might have uh, can be put into superannuation to make sure that the employees of that farm, if that can, in, that, in if it is the owners in that case, they're not necessarily um, paying themselves superannuation like a government employee or would or an, a corporate employee. So this, the farm goes into a superannuation account and you know they can um, draw down on or, or arrange for payments and that sort of thing. So it is slightly different when you know the, the asset uh, that is the core business of, of or the core asset on the farm, the, the actual business, is in the superannuation account and it does have to build up over long periods of time. So it does take, you know, many years for that asset to appreciate. And that could be the, the lump sum of the superannuation package for for that business. Now, um, when the succession planning situation comes around, if it's, you know, parents leaving the farm and the children taking over, it gets really complex around how that asset can be divided up from a superannuation perspective. And what it might do in this worst case scenario is you know, dampen investment, uh, hold back uh, succession planning. We know we've got an ageing population in population in the agriculture sector. So there's all of these sorts of things, Christy, that, you know, we actually need to work through and it can't just be a, a blanket statement that, you know, because you've got more than $3 million in assets, and it does sound like a lot to, you know, if you're, you're living in urban Australia and you've got $3 million in your superannuation account, a lot of people would say, well, that's quite nice. I wish I had $3 million in my superannuation account. But when you look at it from a farm business asset point of view, uh, you know, you'd be, be struggling to get... Uh, a moderate, decent-sized farm for $3 million these days. Mm. What have you heard from farmers since this announcement? What kind of conversations have you had? Well, they're sort of asking us, you know, what's the what's the consultation been like? And as, uh, as I mm. began, um, you know, it's been non-existent or minimal. And we understand that this is proposed to take place from 2025. So... Um, you know, hopefully there's time for uh, consultation to be provided. But farmers are just, you know, it's it's probably quite specific to the agriculture sector, in particular to, you know, farm businesses. Um, so they're, they're concerned and just wanting to know more details about, you know, what I just uh, uh, alluded to. There's various dimensions to this and a range of different farm business setups. What impact could this have on investments? Well, again, from a uh, from a farm business point of view, if there is an increased tax rate, if it's increased complexity around this situation, people might look at uh, farming in a different way or agriculture in a different way, and that's what we don't want. We need continued investment in agriculture. We need to actually reward agriculture and farm businesses. In the last few years, agriculture has been one of the few sectors that have powered on, and we've increased the farm gate value up to over $80 billion. And we started, uh, you know, looking at this $100 billion goal that the National Farmers Federation has got four years ago when the farm value was $60 billion. So in about four or five years... 
the value of farm gate production has risen $20 billion. Now that's off the back of you know a few good seasons and prices and things like that. But what we don't want is uh, for investment to be dampened, for people to start cooling off about you know looking into agriculture and, and putting funds into agriculture. We think it's a growth sector. Um, we think it's got huge opportunities with you know trade opportunities continuing to open, loosen up. Uh, so that's you know that's our agenda is make sure that agriculture is seen in the right light and the people working in agriculture, that's farmers, uh, are looked after. That's Tony Maher, the CEO of the National Farmers Federation, speaking there. What do you make of that? Are farmers right to be concerned about changes, flagged changes to superannuation laws in Australia? And uh, and do they have a point on not being consulted? You can let us know what you think. Send a text 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. So whilst we're talking about money in farming, where's all that money and value in farming coming from? One way to measure returns and the ability for a business to make a profit is through productivity. And episode three this week have published a graph showing a big difference farm enterprises are getting in productivity gains over the last more than three decades. And it's comparing enterprises, so livestock, cropping, etc. Who wins? Matt Dalgleish from episode3.net can join you now. Hi, Matt. G'day, Warwick. Thanks for having me on. We're not talking little differences in terms of productivity gains on farms here. The graph is wide and varied here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you look at one particular sector, which is broadacre cropping, they're well and truly um, making the most of these productivity gains over the last three decades. So take us through the basics. Where have these numbers come from and what are they telling you? Yeah, so ABARES uh, calculate, they do a, an annual survey each year across a whole range of farms with different enterprises. And then with some of the data they collect there in terms of you know, key inputs and outputs of different enterprise mixes, they're able to model um, what they estimate as a, as a productivity index. Um, so then it just gives you a bit of an idea or a trend on how productivity has been going for different enterprises across the country. Um, so it's quite quite good, robust data from all over the country. Um, and then it's, you know, it's modelled to give these estimates of productivity. So why is cropping so far ahead of basically every other agricultural enterprise? Yeah, if you look at the trend over the last, well, it's just a bit more, like you said, than 30 years, um, the the change to the index for cropping is it's up by 70%. So if you go back to, I think it started in 1989 was the first year it was run, um, and through to 2021, there's been a 70% increase to productivity for cropping farms, um, you know, which is significant when you compare it to, you know, say livestock. It's, it's got beef and sheep are the two main ones, but actually over that whole 30-year period, if you look at combined beef and sheep enterprise, they've actually net gone down fractionally. Um, it's about 10% below where the index started 30 years ago. 70% increase for cropping and you're seeing yeah, beef and, and beef and sheep enterprises going backwards. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not to say they haven't had over the whole period. If you look at the trend for, for beef and sheep, a lot of the loss in productivity was the early kind of decades from the, you know, the mid-90s through to about the mid-2000s. And then since the mid-2000s, they actually have become more productive again, um, but they're pretty much just, you know, captured lost ground, I suppose, um, back to where they were at, you know, back in the early 90s. But when you think about changes in handling equipment, uh, genetics, uh, feed availability, you would have thought there would have been more in terms of gains for, for a livestock enterprise, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, we have seen some gains in the last, say, decade and a half, but um, unfortunately they started off on a lower base because of that loss of productivity in the early stages, whereas, whereas the cropping, the trend for cropping has been pretty static, kind of standard um, increase per year. If you look at the, the annual change per year on a compounding basis, cropping enterprises have put on about 2% productivity nearly every, you know, every year for the last 30 years. It's been pretty steady increases. Um, you can also look at the data, Warwick, the, the ABES have a, a, one that's a climate-adjusted figure um, that takes into account climatic factors and also the non-climate-adjusted. So you can see when you look at the non-climate-adjusted data that there is a little bit more volatility for cropping, particularly around times of drought. Um, you do see that impact to yield, which makes sense with you know, Broadacre re relying such on, so much on rainfall. Um, but despite that, you know, you still see the, the general trend has been pretty positive for cropping right the way through. And, and it's a testament, I guess, to all of those technologies we've seen over the, over the you know, last few decades um, that have assisted us in increasing yield. And so do you see data like this then start to turn up in, in other data that you're looking at in terms of uh, cropping as a percentage of Australia's business and the, the area that now is being cropped, I'd imagine, has um, grown since 1989 as well? Absolutely. One that really stands out actually is if you look at the area under cropping to the number of head of, of sheep being held across the country. And, and that follows, I mean, a, a pretty direct trend. You can see the growth in hectare under cropping over the last 30 years since the 90s and the reduction in the sheep flock or the number of, of being held by farmers. Um, it, it kind of corresponds, I guess, to the change of dynamic of the wool sector as well and, and the transfer away a bit away from wool and into prime lamb, which is also been undertaken um, over the last few decades. But yeah, it does mirror this kind of productivity measures also mirror in some of the decisions that have been made on the broad broad scale across some um, farming enterprise in terms of what the enter enterprise mix is. Broadly though, does data like this mean industries that aren't performing as well as say cropping need to, to look at themselves in terms of all the research dollars that are spent and industry money spent to get productivity gains and, and if that's being effective? Mm. I mean, I guess it's it's important to note that that this is productivity, not profitability. So there could be a, a, a variation between you know profitability measures rather than productivity measures. Pro productivity is pretty important to profitability, though, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? You is, I mean, yeah, it, it helps you to stay. I guess um, you know if you're looking at scenarios, particularly when you look at. Uh, the pricing of outputs on a on a on an inflation adjusted basis, we know that a lot of the commodities that that farmers sell have been coming down in real terms, um, which means that you've got to you know you've got to always be mindful of your efficiencies on farm and making sure you're becoming more and more efficient each season because of this you know pr pr price pressure squeeze or inflationary pressure squeeze that that exists. Um, and, and that's part of exactly part of what you're saying, that if you don't pay attention to productivity over the longer term, you can you know, have that flowing through to your profitability uh, down the track. And I'd imagine in yeah, times like this where there are higher costs involved, uh, it's even more important uh, than, than when uh, inflation isn't biting. Matt Dalgleish, thank you very much for joining us and taking us through at least these numbers. And I suppose uh, we'll have to watch where they go from here. Uh, thanks, Warwick. Thanks uh, for having me. Matt Daglish there from Episode 3, analyst looking at productivity on farms. And the data does show a huge difference between uh, cropping enterprises, a 70% increase to their productivity index, which is ABARES data, Australian government data, uh, compared to a decline of 0.3% for sheep beef operations over the same period. wonder what you make of that. You can... 
certainly let us know. Let's keep moving here on the country hour, though. News and weather is on the way. Uh, let's talk gypsum now, though, because it's a busy time for gypsum miners in the state's northwest, sending out hundreds of truckloads every day destined for farms from Tasmania to Queensland and everywhere in between. The popular fertiliser and soil conditioner only occurs naturally in select locations, including near Rainbow in the Southern Mallee and around Kerrang and Swan Hill. Emma Lester from Albacatcha Gypsum and Limestone says farmers have switched quickly from carting grain carding gypsum? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly has been busy. We sort of opened very early January and uh, sometimes that's pretty quiet, but it, we've been hit fairly heavily this January and it just sort of hasn't eased off. So yeah, it's been quite a busy, busy year so far. What sort of tonnage or, or truckloads have you got going out the gate each day? Look, on average, we probably get about 150 trucks a day. Um, perhaps it's not I guess for us, a busier season than last year. We just normally would have two pits running. Um, so we've only got one this year. So I guess the majority of trucks are coming to one pit instead of spread over two. And I, I know it does capture a bit of attention on social media, the the um, the morning photo of the, the trucks lined up to be loaded. Uh, that's exactly right. I think that's why everyone's thinking it's such a, a massive year because um, there is a lot of social media going out about it um, this year, which we ha- sort of haven't had in the past. So it's certainly creating a lot of phone calls to us, whether people get loaded, how long do we have to wait, are we going to get some, are you going to run out? Yeah, it's just creating a lot of fuss that probably isn't necessary. Ah, so you've got people seeing those, or farmers or truck drivers seeing those pictures and thinking they, they could be in for a, a massive wait? That's exactly right, yes, yeah. I mean, the turnaround time... It, can be a, a little while, but um, we're certainly not going to run out of product at all. Can you talk me through what's the the actual mining or, or extraction process? Um, I, I guess is, is all of the, the subsoil at the site gypsum, or does it have to be sorted through? How deep's the gypsum? Can you just explain that? Yeah, it does have to be sorted through. There's sort of uh, a topsoil, like overburden, which, would ha- which has to be removed to sort of find the gypsum underneath. The depth varies a lot going uphill it shallows out a lot but it could be sort of six feet and um yeah if you get on a good stream of it you're sort of laughing and that sort of has to get um dug out the ground which we do with a milling machine and then put through a screening plant and stockpiled ready to load in terms of supply you mentioned before i guess in the long term have you got plenty of supply or are you going to have to try and get a a license expansion um, we've, we've got a couple of pits, so I would say at the moment we probably have three or four million tonne accessible, um, and it's just a matter of finding more areas and pegging them, um, just to sort of make sure your supply keeps going. Okay, so have you gone down the process of trying to get a, get a new licence or an expanded licence? Uh, we've got, uh, other areas in the pipeline, yes. And I know I've spoken with some of the, the gypsum miners in the northern part of the state, in that Kerrang district, who've who've got problems trying to get through red tape, are you perhaps having customers come down from the north because maybe they can't get the supply from from those pits? I think we are. Yes, we are sort of getting uh, a, a lot of new customers, which we haven't had before from that sort of area. So I, I think, yeah, with perhaps the trouble they might be having, it is having a, an on-flying effect for us as well. How about pricing? How do you go about setting the per tonne price for gypsum? I think it varies a lot for people because the, the prices are fairly different um, across the pit. 
but we just sort of make sure we cover costs. We've got a lot of machinery and a lot of staff um, to sort of help us out because it's a fairly big operation and, yeah, you just need to make sure you're making a bit on the side and enough to get you up and running again for the following year. You said this year you just got the one pit, haven't been as busy as last year, but in the long term, is there increasing demand for gypsum, do you think, Emma? Are, are people putting putting more out more frequently? Uh, look, I think they are. I think um, your other options of fertiliser, the price has just sort of gone through the roof. So this being a natural fertiliser and reasonably priced, I think people are probably more leaning towards that than other products. And what's your footprint? What area are you servicing? I mentioned trucks coming down from the north, but I imagine coming from all directions. We have uh, trucks cut from every state, including Tasmania. So, yeah, we our gypsum goes everywhere. Mm, and that's, I guess, Wimmera or Wimmera Mallee farmers fortunate that they've got that naturally occurring gypsum in relatively close proximity, but, but not the case in, in all areas. No, that, that's right, that's right. The people that sort of cart it two or three hours are probably the lucky ones. But, yeah, there's certain people that would only get one, one load a day or, you know, a couple a week. So some people are travelling a long way with it. That's Emma Lester from Albuquerque, Gypsum and Limestone, speaking there to Angus Verley. Sending trucks to Tasmania with gypsum in it, which is amazing to me. You're listening to The Country Hour. Many of you are having your say on the text line. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Let's head to the newsroom first, though, and find out what's making regional news headlines. Laura Mayers has that for us today. G'day, Laura. Hey Warwick, making news around regional Victoria today. A parliamentary hearing into regional bank closures has begun in Gippsland. The hearing and sale is one of several in a broader Senate inquiry examining reasons behind branch closures and their effects. Representatives from Westpac and the National Australia Bank will speak today, as well as local councils, a union and small business owners. Emergency services were called to a traffic collision in the Grampians tourist town of Halls Gap at around 9 o'clock this morning. A toddler has been flown to the Royal Children's Hospital in a critical condition and a woman has flown, been flown to the Royal Melbourne in a stable condition. The major collision investigation team are heading to the scene. There will be some delays and closures on the stretch of Grampians Road. Police are calling for drivers to allow for extra travel time. Victoria Police's Assistant Commissioner for the Western Region says the majority of the state's 62 deaths on roads this year are completely avoidable. Of lives lost on the state's roads this year so far, 18 have been in the Western Region, which includes Ballarat and Warrnambool. Mick Granger says drivers need to make good choices every time they get behind the wheel, including driving to conditions and avoiding using a mobile phone while driving. A 42-year-old man has been charged with 27 offences relating to possessing illegal firearms and drugs. Police executed a search warrant on a property in Jindira, north of Albury, yesterday morning, where they seized several firearms, drugs and items alleged to have been stolen. The man was refused bail and will appear before Albury local court today. 
And Environmental Justice Australia is urging the government to implement stronger statewide legislation to ensure companies are rehabilitating sites of fossil fuel and mining projects. An online public consultation phase on a proposed scheme which aims to strengthen requirements for coal mine operators to rehabilitate Latrobe Valley's coal mines ended earlier this week. But Environmental Justice Australia lawyer Chloe Badcock says the legislation needs to include all major project sites, not just coal mining. And for more regional news at any time, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Laura. Laura May is there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Indeed, you are. Many of you having your say on the text line about, well, a couple of our stories earlier today on the productivity increases being there for cropping, but but not many other farming enterprises when we're looking back at the data since 1989. This text, uh, probably is a little bit inflammatory, says cropping is easy. You just put the crop in and forget it until harvest. I think it's quite like that, but thank you very much. Tim from Albury says, I believe the 70% increase in cropping. I don't believe the example, the wool cut, uh, cut has gone backwards. Well, the clip certainly has, but uh, in terms of the amount from the sheep, I understand what you mean by that. In the last 30 years, all the weight of our cattle's gone back. In that case, why are we paying exorbitant prices for bulls and rams, says Tim from Albury. That's, yeah, Tim, I'll try to make that point about genetics. That's interesting, I think, to keep an eye on. And we're also talking about superannuation to the NFL. FF uh, questioning the government's changes to superannuation, particularly for those over uh, with accounts over $3 million in value. Farmer Joe says superannuation is meant to provide a reasonable standard of living during retirement and less uh, reliance on the pension. It was never meant to be a tax haven or assets accumulation means. Perhaps we need other means to deal with ag issues and succession, says Farmer Joe on the text. You can let us know. What you think about those and our other stories today on the text line 0467-842-722. Let's head to the Weather Bureau, though, where Matthew Thomas is a senior forecaster on duty for us today. G'day, Matthew. Hello. How are you, Warwick? I'm good. How's it looking around Victoria today? Oh, look, a um, bit of a, a mixed bag across the, the state. Um, call a southerly stream over the, the state, um, just resulting in um, cloudy conditions um, on and south of the the ranges mostly, Um, but largely um, clear conditions about the the north. And the the warmest um, temperatures have been um, about um, parts of the the north. So it's made it to 28 degrees so far at at Albury and um, 27 degrees at um, Rutherglen and um, and Yarrawonga. So particularly about the the northeast, that's where it's been um, warmest, but um, a little bit cooler um, about um, western and southern parts of the the state um, so far. We haven't seen a great deal of um, rainfall in the gauge. A few locations about the um, the south have picked up um, um, some amounts. Um, about some coastal locations, we've seen a, a few get up to closer to, to one millimetre, but mostly it's been about 0.2 millimetres. So, you know, just a, the odd annoying light shower about the south. Um, and that's um, going to, to continue through the remainder of today um, with a, a high-pressure system building um, south of the Bight, just maintaining that cooler southerly stream across the, the state. We'll see those um, cloudy conditions with isolated light showers 
persist about southern Victoria, I'd be surprised if any location picked up more than um, two millimetres um, of rainfall um, out of this um, stream today. Um, and mostly it's going to be coastal or ranges that, um, that will pick up um, that amount. Um, and then into tomorrow, that high-pressure system just um, slowly moving to the east and, um, and expected to move over Tasmania later in the day. And we'll see that um, cooler southerly stream just continue but ease back into the... Um, into the afternoon as that um, high-pressure system um, approaches, tending more south-easterly into Gippsland with the showers. Um, the light showers just really um, continuing about the south, but mainly through Gippsland um, into tomorrow. We might see the odd patch of, of fog about and uh, the cooler but mainly um, clear conditions um, persisting through the um, the north of the state. But as that high then moves out over the Tasman Sea into Saturday, We'll see um, temperatures begin to um, to warm across the the state, and so we will see um, temperatures pushing back into the um, the um, the low 30s on Saturday. Um, certainly um, across much of the the north of the the state, um, and um, and into Sunday, picking up into the the mid to high 30s um, through. Um, through parts of the um, the north of the state, um, as a, ahead of an approaching um, um, cold front. But on Saturday, a trough just lingering about the northeast of the state. We'll see some um, isolated showers about and thunderstorms about the um, the eastern half of the state, about the northeast, um, western South Gippsland and East Gippsland, but not terribly much um, expected um, in the um, the rain gauge. We're we're really just looking at um, north to five millimetres about the um, the east of the state on Sunday with that cold front to approach. That's going to um, see those um, those um, winds begin to pick up um, and um, and an increase in. Um, in um, temperatures, and that will drive um, some high fire dangers about parts of um, of the um, the state. Um, but we will see some isolated um, showers and thunderstorms about the um, eastern parts of the state through the day, and showers developing about western and central parts in the afternoon and evening ahead of that approaching um, cold front. We're looking at um, around north to five millimetres um, in terms of the the rainfall once again. We might see a little bit more with the, the storms about the um, the, the northeast, um, 10 to 15 millimetres might be possible with those. That cold front really um, continuing to cross um, central and eastern parts of the state on Monday ahead of another approaching cold front. We'll see um, the, the showers on Monday mainly in the morning. We could see up to, to 10 millimetres on and south of the ranges um, and about the northeast of the state less than two millimetres about the, the remainder of the north. We might see 10 to 15 millimetres um, with thunderstorms, um, particularly over the eastern ranges. Or, um, um, But most of those uh, shower activity easing back on Monday afternoon ahead of um, another approaching cold front, which will cross on um, Tuesday. Um, that will bring some showers once again to the, um, the south of the state. We won't see terribly much push north of the divide, um, and we could see, um, you know, generally, um, you know, north to eight millimetres um, about the, the south of the state um, on, on Tuesday, a significantly cooler um, 
period and we might even see the odd dusting of snow about the alpine peaks um, but then into Wednesday and Thursday an easing southwesterly stream. Oh okay we'll keep an eye uh, for that but yes autumn's here Matthew thank you very much for that. No worries. Matthew Thomas senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau taking us through the full forecast there. Uh, a lot of your texts Actually, I did want to make room for this from yesterday. We were speaking about the uh, yesterday the collapse of Scott's Refrigerated Logistics, the, the tracking company, meaning 1,500 jobs were on the line. The, the uh, administrators there saying they believe they've got a good opportunity to sell that business. But talking about the wider problems in the industry and how people, uh, how the industry was going, particularly in a time of high inflationary pressures and high fuel prices. A couple of you had wanted to have your say. I did say I'd make room in it in the program today uh, to read those texts. Mick from Bell Ranald, a retired owner-driver, says, Hi Warwick, nothing is going to change for truckies and transport operators while you have a ridiculous system where the customer and big supermarket chains are setting the freight rates regardless of economic pressures to the transport companies, says Mick on the text line. John in sales says the price of diesel alone must be addressed in this country. With that, uh, with fuel at that price, it affects every aspect of our food production right through to transport and supply to the people. Governments letting people down with vital fuel management in this country, says John from Sale. There are some of your thoughts coming in, particularly on that issue facing the trucking industry at the moment. And if you want to read more about that, you can go online to abc.net.au slash rural. We'll park the trucks. We'll talk horses next on the program. You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. If you have horses in the paddock, what do you know about the pastures they're feeding on and how good that pasture, that grass, is actually for them? Emma Goodall is an agronomist and also a horse enthusiast with a Bachelor of Equine Science under her belt, and she wants to develop a better system for horse pastures and recently received $7,000 from the AgriFutures Rural Women Accelerator Grant Program, which she's going to use to refine and develop her idea. Horses have a pretty bad reputation in agriculture as being turners, so turning a good paddock into a bad, into a bad one. Uh, and there are a couple of factors that contribute to that. So horses themselves are selective grazers. They, they don't um, graze as efficiently as, say, sheep or cattle. Um, they tend to go through and pick out what is essentially the chocolate in a grass pasture and then leave the all bran and um, wait for their humans to come and fix it. My challenge is to try and stop horse paddocks being the, the worst paddocks in the district. Uh, and to do that, we need um, a few more grasses in the horse pasture mix that are appropriate and horse safe that still have good agronomic founding. So you're looking at a project to look at this issue. What are you going to work on? I'm actually looking to see if I can combine the great minds of somebody like Kentucky Equine Research um, with one of the, the major seed companies who have novel endophyte technology to look to create a mycotoxin binder um, to suit a specific alkaloid profile um, produced by endophyte. So endophyte's a fungi that lives um, symbiotically with grasses. Um, unfortunately, they, they produce chemicals to protect the grass that they don't differentiate between a pest being a bug um, or a pest being a grazing animal. So um, there's a microtoxin binder and that is what you want to remove from those grasses? No, so it's actually about trying to match a mycotoxin binder to a specific 
endophytic alkaloid profile. So standard endophyte, which is the wild type endophyte that a lot of perennial ryegrasses have, in all species of animals, we see that produce heat stress and staggers. Novel endophyte for sheep and cattle um, has removed the, you know, the risk of either heat stress or staggers. Um, which reduces the, the overall impact, but that research has never been applied to horses. So um, this is an option to try and get a more agronomically sound grass. So the likes of DLF, who used to be Wrightson's, um, or Barrenbrook, um, they have an epoxy jantrum type endophyte either in the market or coming to market. Um, and I've been looking to try and match a mycotoxin binder to that specific alkaloid so that we can make the, you know, the leading ryegrasses horse safe um, which gives us some, some options to clean up paddocks. Ryegrass isn't the ideal species for horses in that it is quite high sugar, um, but it does give us some, some cultural control for weed in terms of its speed to establishment um, and capacity to you know, have a short rest and be grazed again. So it's, it's not a silver bullet, but it should hopefully be an improvement on great, you know, forage weeds, which currently seem to populate horse paddocks. And how do you plan on doing that? Will it be a series of trials or lab work? How are you trying to do that? That's been one of the challenges. So this has been a, a bit of a dream that's been kicking along in the background for a while. Um, and I was recently awarded the AgriFutures um, Rural Women's Acceleration Grant, and that's actually about providing the professional development to go about setting up the structure to, to undertake this. So initially the challenge will be to get the uh, the major parties in a room because... Horse people and horse industries don't necessarily uh, cross over well with commercial agriculture. So to be able to get the, the respective parties in the room um, to then work out what we would need to do in terms of either tweaking existing technology. So there are mycotoxin binders on the market at the moment. Can we tweak those to, to fit um, the agronomic profile of one of the epoxy jantrum types? Or is it a case of we need to, you know, go right back to basics and run through a full animal feeding type trial, um, which changes the, the dollar value quite significantly? Um, and then looking at, you know, can we in fact commercialise a package of a grass with a novel endophyte, with a mycotoxin binder and bring that, bring that to market as a commercial package? Not just to give horse, horse owners confidence, but also to give other agronomists who may not have done our Bachelor of Equine Science in support of their agronomic degree, the confidence to, to support people in that space. I mean, there's a lot of horse ownership out there. Why have, do you think this work hasn't been done before? I nearly, I would nearly wonder if it's the, you know, the, the demarcation between what is commercially viable um, in terms of sheep, beef and dairy. Um, there's quite a lot of industry backing and, uh, for, for research, for development of technologies. Um, and then the horse industry doesn't seem to be prepared to fund itself the same way that other agricultural industries are. So, you know, from a dairy point of view, um, you know, dairy farmers pay a levy that contributes to research for the, the, the dairy industry. That isn't something that I've ever come across, be it the equestrian world, be it, be it through U3 Racing Victoria. So, yeah, there's some, some real disjointedness there and I think there's, there's a lot of muck and mystery in the horse space as well. So the provision of, oh, you just give them turmeric or, you know, you just do this or you just do that, we actually need some science to back up why we're doing something, what the pros and cons of that are, to then have a product that stands up with, with some rigour. Uh, it's Ballarat-based based agronomist Emma Goodall there speaking with Emma Field, our reporter. Emma Field will be presenting the Country Hour for you tomorrow. I'll be on Drive, a quick programming note for you as well. It is fascinating to think about pastures 
for horses as well. I think my pony spent a lot more time in the Jenny Craig paddock than anything else, as we called it when I was younger. So the idea of of good pastures for horses is certainly an, an interesting one for me to hear about. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 12 to 1. We'll stay on pastures right now because not only can flooding cause paddock damage and to uh, damage, sorry, to paddocks and pastures, but it can also help the re-emergence of long, dormant, invasive weeds. Consultant Cam Nicholson says it's important producers get out in the paddock and have a good look at their pastures for weeds, particularly after the last season of floods and heavy rains across much of Victoria. He says the best time to be on the lookout for these new weeds is winter because there'll be some weeds that you may not have seen in a pasture for 20 years and they lay dormant there and once you've had the conditions like your flooding it's quite possible that you'll get these that you haven't seen for decades will come up and be an issue this year so people do need to be vigilant this autumn and winter in particular to see what's there so if you're out there actually looking physically looking at your pastures I think that's really valuable so I'd, I'd be first looking probably about the middle of winter Um, because some weeds are slower to germinate than others. So if you go too early, you won't pick them up. They won't have germinated. And secondly, when the weeds are small, they all look the same. So when, say, broadleaf weeds come out, they always come out with two little leaves, and a lot of those leaves all look the same. You've got to wait until they start growing what we call their true leaves, and then you can start to pick the difference and identify what they are. And tell us a little bit about the testing system uh, that you created. Okay, so it's a simple system. We called it Pasture Paramedic because it was, it's based on just identifying two or three critical things that you can do quickly and easily in the paddock and point you in the right direction. It's a bit like a paramedic, as I, I said. Um, you know, they'll tell whether you're breathing, whether you're conscious, whether you're, you're bleeding or not, whether you've got broken bones. And on that assessment, that rapid assessment, then we'll decide whether you need to go to hospital or just go and see the doctor or whether you just go to bed with a couple of Panadol. Um, And it's the same sort of thing with this. It's a rapid way of being able to test where your pastures are at and think, oh, okay, I might need to do further investigation in this or that. Um, And that's where some of the other resources that I spoke about come in. And so you saw a need for it in terms of uh, like weed assessing in general or pasture uh, testing um, in terms of more critical testing or more observant testing? Um, Yeah, I I used to get called out by a lot of clients saying, could you come and have a look at this pasture? I need to re-sow it. And I'd come out and we'd drive across the paddock and I'd tell the farmer to, to stop. I'd open the door. I'd look down, I'd get them to drive on a bit further and I'd open the door again and so on. And one farmer said to me, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just visualising a small area and I'm checking off these two or three things on a checklist. Um, and on that basis, I'll make a recommendation for you. And he said to me, I want to know how you do that. And so that's sort of the genesis. So well, I could probably write this down. And, and so it turned into that rapid assessment tool. Um, I found there are a lot of people that were thinking, oh, this is a write-off of a pasture and we need to re-sow it when in fact it did have potential if we changed some of the management and some of the things we were doing. So a lower cost, um, better return um, activity than ripping it up and starting again. Why is it so important to be testing pastures? Uh, Probably the main reason is you want to get the most out of them. They want to grow for as long as you can for the rainfall that you've got in a year and you want them to be of the highest quality and as productive as possible because then we turn them into animal products. So you can imagine if you can grow twice as much pasture in a year, you've got potential then to run more animals and and make more profit. Um, And so that's what we're trying to do. For the rainfall, we're always limited unless you've got irrigation. We're limited by the season and the rainfall that we get. But when we get it, do we make the most of it? 
That is Nikon Rural Consultant Cam Nicholson. He was speaking to our new reporter, Sarah Price, who's going to be working with us for a few months as well, uh, and speaking to her at Agriculture Victoria's Best Lamb, Best Wool Roadshow, which is continuing this month around Victoria. You're listening to The Country. I've spent a lot of time looking at numbers and looking at what's growing at the moment. Let's finish right there since that's been the theme of today's program. There's a lot of advice out there for farmers who want to start looking at things like their own carbon emissions. However, there's farmers already working in that space in areas like northeast Victoria. Julian Carroll runs a seed stock business at Mudjigonga, 50 kilometres south of Wodonga, with 350 Angus females producing steers for the EU uh, feedlock market. Before he went farming, though, Julian was an economist, so loves crunching numbers. But for the past two years, he's been calculating the carbon footprint of his farm as part of a monitoring project and has planted trees over 17% of the total area of his property. He's speaking here to Annie Brown at the Farming Carbon Conference in Beechworth about what he's doing and if it's working. I guess in this whole carbon discussion, um, we still see the most important drivers to be uh, productivity and profitability and our sustainability. So uh, we've planted a lot of trees on the farm. We're up to about 17% of the total area on the farm that um, I've got the stats for today that we talk about. Uh, And we do that not to generate, um, you know, carbon credits or or to sequester carbon specifically, but we do that for uh, biodiversity and protecting riparian zones and stock shelter, that sort of thing. So would you say uh, what you do on your farm is a bit more like insetting rather than offsetting, like what we've talked about here at the conference? Yeah, it, it is It is insetting, but it's not done for insetting. Insetting is a bonus of, right. of uh, the other benefits, for, obviously, for planting trees. Yeah. And how long have you been doing some of these practices? Uh, I came back to the farm 11 or 12 years ago, and uh, it's been a flurry of activity probably in, the, in that period of time. And have you seen any changes on the farm in that time since implementing some of these things? Uh, I was pretty startled at how quickly the um, the, the creek zones uh, started to look significantly better, and uh, yeah, happier stock now that there's more shade available in, in all of the paddocks. Some paddocks were missing it a little bit. I think another thing that's been mentioned a few times already in the conference today is that um, there's a lot of confusion around carbon and farming. Would you agree with that? Do you think it's kind of a confusing space for producers and farmers to get into? Yeah, it is a confusing space. I spend a lot of time with different groups of farmers and it's usually the issue they want to talk about and there's a lot of misconceptions because there's you know, quite different topics and issues to consider. Uh, selling carbon credits uh, is, is you know, one, almost topic, one topic that's quite different to... Uh, simply understanding your own carbon footprint. Uh, and the metrics around understanding your carbon footprint, you know, can be confusing as well. The industry goal of or aspiration of becoming carbon neutral, I think, has been interpreted by many farmers as something that they've got to achieve on their farm, when I think the reality is quite clear that that's probably not going to happen. So, yeah, it's obvious that there's confusion abounds. And I guess when it comes to measuring your carbon on your farm, you know, how difficult of a process has that been? For us, it was really easy because we were already doing business benchmarking, uh, which means we were collecting all of the same data that goes into your carbon accounting tools. So it's, it's the one carbon accounting methodology mostly used by red meat producers, the SBGAF tool developed by Melbourne University. Uh, and it is a lot of data, so if it's the first time you're doing it, there's, there's a lot of data to collect. Uh, the second and third time you do it, you're actually really well organised and it's quite straightforward. Does it add a lot to your workload? 
Uh, it does the first time. It's pretty stressful the first time because you've got to go hunting around for bits of paper or emails, um, kill sheets, market reports, statements from agents, uh, general financials. So that's pretty daunting the first time you do it. Um, but uh, you develop systems pretty quickly to say, OK, as I go, I'm going to be organised and I'm going to have this spreadsheet that gets my, keeps my sale information and this spreadsheet that, that keeps a, an inventory of my fodder stocks, things like that. What's the goal for, for your farming business? Our goal is not to sell ACUs, but to, to really understand our footprint and be able to make claims about the carbon intensity that goes into our beef production so that when we're marketing a truckload of steers to whichever aspect of the supply chain we can say uh, we produce this we use this much carbon to produce this load of steers that is julian carroll from Majigonga speaking there to annie brown market time on the country we'll go to bandstyle first and brendan fletcher G'day, Warwick numbers increased to 240, that's 60 more with most of the usual buyers present but not all operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality was mixed with fewer heavy beef cows and more secondary grown cattle. The young cattle were mostly lacking finish and restocking steers improved. Grown cattle sold mostly firm with some isolated cheaper sales. Light dairy cows sold firm while heavy beef cows eased 20 cents with processors loading cows for an estimated 5.41 to 5.82 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased slightly. Yearling restocking steers sold from 3.20 to 3.78. Yearling heifers 3.24 to 3.49. A couple of grown steers made 3.45. Manufacturing steers 2.85 to 3.27. Most light and medium weight cows 1.90 to 2.75. Heavy weights 2.42 to 300. Heavy bulls 2.50 to 3.02. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. To Wagga Sheep now and Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers eased to 42,000. The quality varied. There were good runs of heavy and extra heavy lambs. Trade weights were very mixed and there were plenty of light stores. Not all the usual buyers operated. Shorn lambs attracted the strongest competition while lambs with a dry skin were discounted. The market sold to a cheaper trend to process. Store lambs were firm to dearer, most 100 to 138. Trade weights were up to 10 cheaper. The 22 to 24 kilos, 165 to 193. 24 to 26, 183 to 206. An average 750 to 760 cents. The best out to 800. Heavy lambs, 26 to 30, 192 to 230. Extra heavies reached 282. Most of these range from 700 to 760 cents. Heavy hoggets, 101 to 171. The few mutton sold have been dearer. Trade sheep, 70 to 108. Heavy weights, firm, 100 to 134. There's still 10,000 to be sold. And this has been Graham Richard. Thanks very much for that, Graham. We'll head to Hamilton last with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers increased to 9,100 at Hamilton, an increase of some 4,700, where the quality and offer was medium to plain, with less heavyweight sheep, together with a greater mix of merinos on offer. All the regular processes were in attendance, however not all were active throughout the sale. The sale was very strong with all categories improving by 15 to $20 per head and more in places. Heavy crossbred ewes made to a top of $145, the well-covered merino ewes to 118 and the very good merino weathers topped out at 133 a general run of mutton to make between 300 to 370 cents a kilo and the merino mutton to average between 340 to 400 cents. Rams, the terminal size, made up to $30. Hoggets to 168 
at Hamilton. This is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. And this has been the Country Hour. Thank you very much for your company today. We'll be back with you. Emma Field back with you tomorrow with another show.